Welcome everyone to POV Crypto. I'm David Hoffman here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how you doing? Doing fantastic, man. We just had an awesome episode, probably one of our best interviews yet with Amin Salamani. He came onto the podcast for the third time, for the second time, for a full-fledged interview, and this one was awesome. David, what did we talk about? Oh, so much. Uh, this podcast we made with the motivation of talking about Amin's project, Moloch. Uh, Moloch is a DAO that allows people to uh, collectively fund Ethereum infrastructure, uh, whatever projects that they deem fit to be funded. Um, and it's kind of, a, kind of a, a big experiment, and it's definitely worth following. Amin has been kind of leading the charge in the topic of funding for Ethereum, and so we kind of talk about that at large. Uh, and what it takes for you know Ethereum 2.0 to really succeed in the face of you know competition, in the face of you know governance disputes. Uh, we talk about so much in this episode. We talk about the world of uh, Definity, Cosmos, Polkadot all coming into Ethereum's like rearview mirror, and talking about what developers need to do to make sure that you know Ethereum doesn't lose its competitive edge in the face of this competition. Uh, we talk about at the very end. We talk about blockchain maximalism and and whether there's going to be one blockchain or not. Uh, we talk about on-chain governance and politics surrounding the chain and uh, you know issues that might come up with that. Christian, did we anything else I missed? It was a really wide-ranging conversation. I challenged Amin. He pushed back on me. It was a classic. You know, it started off as Moloch DAO, but turned into a classic Bitcoin versus Ethereum immutability versus nimbleness type of a debate and conversation i had a lot of fun david had a lot of fun uh, you know amin is the best i mean thanks for supporting the show so early on thanks for uh coming on and you know really sharing your perspective uh much respect on my end yeah i think my biggest takeaway from this episode is really just the kind of accurate depiction of the current state of both Ethereum and crypto at large. Uh, Amin really just has his finger on the pulse of the crypto world and the Ethereum world. And so getting Amin's perspective is always hugely valuable. Absolutely. And with that being said, I hope you guys really enjoy the episode. Remember, we're putting in a lot of work and all we ask in return is to rate the show, follow the show on Twitter, show us some love on Twitter. Thank you guys and enjoy this wonderful interview with Amin. Amin, welcome to POV Crypto. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Uh, so Amin, you are our third guest. You've been on here three times. You are our, you were our first guest and then you were on for the East Denver episode and now you are our first uh, second timer. So, you know, thanks for being dedicated to POV Crypto. Is this my hat trick? Yeah, this is your hat trick. Um, so, so the first episode, we talked about a number of things, um, and we talked a little bit about Moloch, but we want to dedicate a entire episode, uh, because Moloch is this very, very cool thing that is in the middle of a very important conversation, which is funding projects on a blockchain like Ethereum that does not have funding built into the base layer. Uh, so we see what you are doing is very, very uh, vital because it really provides a lot of value to the teams that wouldn't have been able to get it elsewhere. Uh, so, I mean, can you kind of tell us a little bit about the incentive, the motivation to build Moloch? Sure. But before I do, I want to say that I don't want to like pat myself on the back or anything too soon, right? This is 
an experiment. We're trying to do something. We haven't actually accomplished anything yet. Uh, but we've we've set the pieces in motion, and we're we're all working towards what you've just described as providing this sort of voluntary uh, funding grants layer for ETH 2.0 projects. Um, so so as you said, the motivation is uh, for building Moloch, which is a grants DAO. Um, it's it's a way for people to uh, pool capital and then vote on how to distribute it. And the purpose, uh, at least initially, is to fund ETH 2.0 projects. Um, and, and generally Ethereum over time, the, the motivation comes from the recognition that there's no inflation funding for development uh, in Ethereum, as opposed to something like Zcash, which has uh, you know 20% of the inflation rewards that go to uh, development and, and stewardship of the protocol. Uh, and so as a result of that, we have these, uh, basically all of the Ether that will be put towards uh, you know, maintenance and stewardship like has to come from ETH holders voluntarily. Um, and so I wanted to create a way for them to pool capital and, and do this because what, what they're most concerned about, if, if somebody is individually willing to give to these projects, the thing that they want to do is they don't want to go in it alone, right? Like I I want to, to get all of the other people who also want to do this together and then coordinate, you know, so, so that the cost for each one of us is, is lower. Uh, and so th that, that was the, the primary motivation in, in trying to build that. Um, and, then, and then there's sort of this like follow-on effect, right? Which is that like the state of Ethereum as it is, is not necessarily always going to be that way. There's potential, and there's an EIP that was written by Kevin Owaki, who, who runs Gitcoin, about using inflation funding for stewardship. Uh, and um, I forget the exact numbers, but I think there's like hundreds of millions of dollars that would come out if, if we took like 20% of the inflation and put it towards development, and that would be more than enough to cover everything, right? Um, it would come at the cost of security and stuff like that, but um, if, if, if we were to ever even attempt to do something like that, there would be a huge coordination problem, which would be like, who gets the money? How do we know that they're going to do it well? How do we trust that like whatever, you know, organization... Uh, that manages this this funding is, is going to do a good job. And so to me, that means like we need to run trials. Uh, we, we need to experiment with pooling resources to do this so that if that time ever comes, we're ready. Um, we, we can say actually, you know, it, like imagine two futures, one where like we, somebody proposes inflation funding and then it's like, uh, you know, we've ne we haven't successfully done a DAO, right? Uh, and then it's like, well, then we have to have this whole conversation about how to how to manage the funds, as opposed to a world where we have done this and we have proven that the model works, and then we can point to that and say, uh, this is good. So wait, it sounds like you are kind of preparing for a world where you think that we will need to have inflation funding to maintain Ethereum. Can you kind of like dig into that a little bit more? Like, where is the real problem that you're trying to solve here? Yeah, it's... I'm not saying that's inevitable. Um, I'm saying that it it's possible po and like maybe probable. Uh, like the EF is not going to be around forever, right? They they don't have any desire to be around forever. Uh, they don't have an infinite pool of money, and so if if so long as Ethereum intends to evolve, then it needs to pay for um, its development, um, and so. I'm I'm trying to think about that. 
I'm trying to think about how do we how do we get to this place where we do have uh, you know uh, like sustainable development um, for the long term. Do you think that needs to carry on in perpetuity? Uh, do you think there needs to be some sort of funding uh, mechanism for you know Ethereum in the world you know two thousand two hundred? Uh, maybe, and um, may- maybe it's enough. Maybe maybe there are enough businesses that build on it that have enough incentive to do so already. Like most of the open source uh, projects, you know, like cro- you know Chromium or, or uh, like th- these projects are funded by uh, big big businesses because they need them for themselves, and then they sort of share costs and and stuff like that. But uh, if if the ecosystem that Ethereum lives in is competitive, uh, if there are other blockchain platforms that do have inflation funding that can move faster, then it would so, behoove right, Ethereum so to in respond terms of that, in kind. Personally, my worldview is like that kind of adds like unnecessary externalities and it even potentially like interferes with the market for choosing the best technology and shaping the best technology is having these like inserting these like funding type scenarios. Can you kind of like, can you walk me through your thinking a little bit more? Like for example, you know, Bitcoin obviously does not have any sort of funding mechanism like that right now, but yet it is being heavily developed both on the base layer and on other technologies built on it. Why do you think Ethereum can't develop that on its own? Um, so Bitcoin doesn't really need to evolve. Uh, the whole point of Bitcoin is that it's supposed to stay the same. Uh, so no, uh, (laughs) like that's the difference, right? Like so long as Ethereum needs to become something it is not, which is like evidenced by the fact that there's like this whole roadmap, which extends to 10 years, you know, ETH2, ETH3, ETH4, right? We got, uh, all of the stuff that people want to do, like somebody needs to pay for that. And like, unless ETH moons, uh, and like, you know, the foundation suddenly has a a huge influx of capital and, and, and which to do this, then like, it's not going to happen. Uh, it'll run out of money. And then like other platforms, which do have inflation funding and can continue to sustain their development will surpass it. That's my worldview. So let's go into some of the mechanisms of Moloch. Like how, how does the actual smart contracting systems work inside of it? Yeah. So, uh, the mechanism of Moloch is really simple. Uh, there are shares, and th- there, there's only a couple types of, of functions. There's You can submit a proposal, and when you submit a proposal, you uh, request a certain number of shares. And when you request these shares, they are newly minted for you. Uh, and then you can optionally offer tribute. And so there's two ways to sort of use this. There's... Uh, Either you want to buy shares by offering capital, uh, or you are offering to do some work uh, and you're receiving a grant. Um, so, like maybe you're funding, you're working on some ETH2 thing, uh, and you want to get a grant. In both cases, you would submit the the proposal, but in the case that you're buying the shares, you would also offer ether as tribute. Uh, and if you're getting a grant, you would just not offer any ether as tribute. Um, and so. In the, the first case, uh, where you're buying the shares, uh, it would be priced in you know ETH per share, right? There's there's only Ether that is pooled right now, um, and 
and in the, the second case, uh, you would re request these shares and they would be newly minted and then um, you could then liquidate your shares. And when you liquidate your shares, you get a the proportional amount of ETH uh, that is held in the guild bank. Um, yeah. And that's it? That's the whole thing? That's basically the whole thing. So you can submit a proposal, you can submit votes, uh, you can process a proposal when the uh, voting is done and there's this grace period which is allows you to, to exit uh, if you didn't vote yes. Um, and then there's uh, a rage quit function which is how you both liquidate the shares and leave if you just want your money back. Um, and there's there's an abort function, there's some permission manage, key management stuff, but that's the whole thing. Right, keep it simple, stupid. Yeah, that's my style. Um, so I was listening to your presentation at ETH Denver, and it sounds like you thought a lot about the game theory on how to make this thing work. Can you kind of like talk a little bit more about um, the thinker behind those thoughts and like designing, uh, you know, this mechanism and why you made certain design choices? Yeah. Uh, so I actually started building this thing uh, like a year ago. So at first it was like, you know, there, there was going to be like raids and loot and like a bunch of ERC-20 tokens and you'd pool it and it could like incentive align people even above, uh, you know, just, just ether and it could be used for a lot of things. Um, but then over time we, we decided to simplify it both for, for game theoretic simplicity and for uh, s security reasons. Um, just because did you decide to do that before or after his bank chain got hacked? <laughs> um, the the final touches came after, uh, but I'm I'm really hoping that this doesn't get hacked. I really don't want to be like you know Stefan Twal. Uh, no offense to Stefan Twal, um, just that you know he was the last guy that was really bold about DAOs uh, and then got wrecked. So uh, the the game theory is pretty simple, right? So there's Basically, you know, the, the 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 first thing we did was was make sure that the the first people in are are pretty aligned uh, on making Ethereum, uh, you know, on advancing Ethereum, um, and and then you can only submit a proposal if you are a member, and so that's sort of an anti-spam mechanism, right? Uh, and then uh, you have to get voted in by the the existing members. And there's no quorum, so th there's no minimum participation in votes required. And part of the reason that that is safe is because there is this thing called a grace period. So when you submit a proposal, it gets added to the end of the queue. Um, five proposals are processed per day, uh, or you know, get uh, added to the, the uh, voting period. And so if the queue is like 10, then you have to wait two days uh, before your proposal goes into voting. Um, then there's a, a seven-day voting period where everybody has this chance to vote. Uh, and then there's uh, a, a seven-day grace period. And so voting is final when the voting period's done. And the grace period allows anybody who voted no or didn't vote to exit uh, to rage quit all their shares. And that's basically a way for people to say, you know what? I don't really like this proposal, it passed, and I don't want my money to go towards it. Uh, I don't want to be diluted uh, when these new shares are made against some of the capital that I have in the guild bank. So I'm going to leave. right? And then 
because you can... And then you can buy this back in later, right? You can, but you have to get the people who are in to uh, convince them to vote you back in. And so if you leave and then you dodge a, you know, a, a, a dilution to, to pay for something and then you come back in, maybe the members are like, ah, you know what, I don't think I want that person back in. Or maybe I'm going to make it more expensive to punish them for leaving and dodging that, that grant or whatever. Um, so b because you have this grace period, uh, the votes aren't final. They're not like executed at the time that the voting period is done. In most voting systems, the votes are final at the end of the voting period. So that's why we added the grace period. Actually, both uh, the, the grace period and the rage quit uh, are both the recommendations uh, by Eamon Gunsairer uh, and, and his uh, fellow uh, academics that posted the uh, call for a moratorium on the DAO. Uh, when the original DAO is in place. And they said that the two things that uh, they would recommend are instant withdrawals and a post-vote grace period. And so we, we took that to heart uh, when we, we implemented it. Because even aside from the hack, the, the DAO had the several game theoretic issues. Um, and basically, any time that somebody can bully you, right? If I, for, for all of the people that might want to participate in Moloch, uh, their chief concern uh, is, well, besides, you know, security and, and all that, the, the chief game theoretic concern is, can somebody who has more votes make me spend my money in a way that I don't want? And because I can leave at any time, the answer to that is no, right? And it actually flips it, because now, as, as the existing, the, none of the existing members are incentivized to do things to make the other members rage quit, because I know that they can leave at any time. So I think... I think that solves a lot of the, the game theory. The analogy I like to use is that it's less of an arranged marriage and more like a one-night stand that might go somewhere. So you kind of talked about how in the rage quit, it's kind of all out. Can you kind of talk about why like you can't just take 50% out or like lessen your exposure? You have to just completely rage quit? Uh, I, I must have misspoke. You actually can. You can rage quit uh, as many of your shares as you want. So if you say, you know what, uh, I still want to be in this thing. Um, but I don't want to put all of my money towards this. I'm, I want to reduce my involvement. You can rage quit half of your shares. Uh, so long as you keep at least one share, you can then continue to submit proposals in the future. What do you think would make Moloch maximally successful? Um, apart from you know people donating millions and millions of dollars to it, what would you what what does a successful Moloch look like to you? So money isn't the only thing here, right? Part part of the advantage of Moloch is that the membership is comprised of some of the top people in the Ethereum space, right? Like Sam Kassat, who's like the chief strategy officer at Consensus, uh, is a founding member. Uh, Martin Koppelman, who's the CEO of Gnosis, uh, is joining. There's fund managers, uh, people who, who work on infrastructure in the space, um, some ETH2 developers, right? It's, it's interesting because it's, it's bringing together uh, a, lot, a lot of people from, from different parts of the ecosystem and I think the, the coordination value itself uh, goes, goes beyond the money. Money, like throwing money at the problem isn't going to work. Uh, it needs to be sort of surgical, right? Like we need to be able to spend the money in non-diminishing return ways. Uh, we need to be able to do things that maybe the foundation isn't already thinking of or fund things that then get follow-on grants from the foundation, uh, you know, that, that lead... Um, and not follow, 
right? To, to set them up to be able to invest, uh, to, to offer grants um, to things that they might have otherwise not done. So when somebody submits a proposal and it gets accepted by Moloch and shares get minted, how is there any guarantee that whoever submitted the, sh the proposal actually does take that money to build what they say they're going to build? There's absolutely no guarantee that they will. Okay, so just so uh, social shaming. Um, so social shaming is one thing, but also because we have this mechanism, because the, the process uh, should be you know, a little bit more transparent, a little uh, less overhead, uh, you can sort of deviate from the typical grant funding uh, cadence, which is like, I'm going to give you 500 or, you know, million dollars, like, and that should last you like a year or two years or something, right? This could be like a, you know, we acknowledge that you're doing good work. We want to see more of it, uh, apply every month. And so then the total downside risk is lower. Do you see this kind of Moloch of having sort of like an endowment effect where everything they do is trying to like make the pot bigger for themselves? So, I could see the selfish, greedy strategy. Um, like, you know, we, we could use Moloch to try and just get more people to, to put in money. Um, that tends to be a good thing, but it's, it comes with the trade-off of alignment, right? We, we don't want your money if you're not aligned. Uh, if you, um, you know, if, if you're going to then spend it on things that the, the rest of the group doesn't agree with, then uh, it, it might not be worth it, right? Uh, so th there's there's a limit uh, to to how much uh, it, it should grow, um, and and it has has to do with just fi like finding the, all the people who really want to help uh, eth Ethereum advance. Has there been discussion as to like what kind of projects uh, members of Moloch want to fund? sooner rather than later? Yeah, so w one of the first things that's being discussed is, uh, that I plan on submitting as a proposal is to pay Keocan back for the ETH 2.0, the state of ETH 2.0 report that we, uh, that I commissioned mm -hmm. them for. Um, past that, I'm proposing putting them on retainer uh, to continue just contributing development and project management uh, to the ETH 2.0 effort. Um, in the future, I could see uh, grants being given for tooling um, or sort of like, uh, you know, support for multiple teams, um, you know, th things that like isn't just directly funding a team, but uh, maybe documentation, um, guides, uh, stuff like that. Um, I could also see it then growing to fund other things uh, like one of the examples I proposed was forking Substrate uh, to plug it into Ethereum because it seems pretty cool, uh, and it would be even you know cool for the whole ecosystem if we could reuse that work, um, but be able to have optionality on the security like which chain we plug into for security if we build on that, um, and like other things like that that will uh, potentially drive value to Ethereum like beyond ETH2. Um, ETH2 is going to go on for a while, though. So there's there's a lot of just like ETH2 stuff that we, we could fund. I do want to get into the subject of ETH, ETH2 and especially the, the report that, that you funded. Um, but I also don't want to make, I want to make sure we hit all of the Moloch topics before, before we leave it. Uh, is there anything about Moloch that we've missed that uh, somebody else might have asked? 
Anything else that you want to talk about that you have not yet gotten a chance to? It's the god of, you know, child sacrifice and coordination failures. Um, hi, hi, you know, part, part of the reason we named it Moloch is uh, because I read this blog post called Meditations on Moloch. Maybe we discussed this on your last podcast. Um, but, you know, pe- a lot, like some people have come up to me and been like, this is so weird. Why did you do this? Like, you know, it's about babies dying, right? And it's like, you know, that's not the point. Like, uh, but like, it's also uh, sort of a mimetic filter. Um, like it, it, it actually keeps people out that care a lot about uh, the, the, you know, representation of things uh, instead of the essence. Um, and then uh, it, it's also marketing for that post because I feel like if everybody reads that post, then like everybody will get things done faster. So if you haven't already, go read Meditations on Moloch. Um, I would concur. Uh, my, my brain's perspective upon the world did change after I read that post. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, other things is just uh, the UI should be done in like a week. Um, and it's going to be pretty badass. And, uh, we have about $175,000 pooled. There's 23 people that have committed 103 each and Mm -hmm. 12 of them, which have submitted. Uh, so I'm excited about it growing. I'm excited about the rest of the founding members joining. I'm excited about, uh, it growing. Um, we, we enforce the sort of hundred ETH minimum for the founding members, but, uh, once, once the UI is out and it's easy to coordinate around it, then we can relax that and invite other people uh, in the ecosystem to join. And if you want to, you can just submit Ether and not participate as a voter, correct? Uh, if you want to send Moloch money, you can just send it to the Guild Bank address, uh, and then it will be available to all the voters. That is, that is to say that any of the members could rage quit and take their share of that money. Um, so... There isn't like a strict separation. In, in this version, it's like very, very simple. Uh, Ke- Kevin Iwaki said that Moloch will do for DAOs what the Model T did for cars. Uh, and, you know, that was a very <laughs> g- generous uh, compliment. Um, but but the point is, is that like, it's it's super simple. I'm hoping, you know, people fork it and stuff. But the trade-off is that it doesn't handle a lot of cases, right? There's no like separation between voting power uh, and uh, shares of, of the capital. Right. It's a, those are the same thing. So you can't like give, you know, add to the grant pool, uh, with, without also giving that money to, to be under the direct control of the members. So in the video, one of the reasons why we kind of talked about this a little earlier, one of the reasons why you built this is because you're feeling kind of heat pressure from competing blockchains in the space. And you think that Ethereum really needs to fire it up like can you kind of talk a little bit more about that and what do you think is the biggest existential threat for ethereum there's there's a spectrum between like cooperation and competition and before all of the other smart contract blockchains launched there's a sort of uh you know beautiful peaceful period uh where everybody's incentives are are more or less you know they're, they're not they haven't really diverged yet um, but after they launch, uh, then the, these competing platforms are going to come to the Ethereum ecosystem hungry uh, and try to convince developers and, and projects to join them. And they're going to try and convince the next generation uh, of you know, blockchain apps and, and developers to go on, on those platforms instead of Ethereum. And so this is ultimately like a, you know, a, a software 
battle or, or something, competition, right? Like, um, this, this gets determined by how good our tools are, how good our docs are, how, how good the system is, um, how, how easy is it to build on this, how, how expensive is it, right? The reason that we're all building on Ethereum and not something like Bitcoin is because it's really hard, right? You'd, you'd have to spend a lot of money on the developers uh, to build anything on Bitcoin. Uh, and, it, and, it's, and it's cheaper to do it on, on Ethereum. Uh, and so making sure that we don't lose sight of that is important to me. Um, and so I see that there's, there's work in the ecosystem that's going towards you know, scaling and, and advancing this, but uh, I wanted to, if, if possible, contribute. And, and Ethereum is moving, uh, the, the ETH 2.0 is moving from being a research project to being an engineering challenge. Um, and so now it's, now it's uh, th that is the bottleneck. And so being able to accelerate that uh, is, is going to mean that um, people who otherwise might leave, because let me uh, back up for a second. If, if ETH2 took like 10 years or something, right? And like that whole time there's other competing smart contract platforms that were, were better and Ethereum wasn't getting much better, then eventually people would leave and all the rest of the developers would go to the other platforms. And so, uh, the, you know, uh, speeding that up means that that is less likely to happen. You said something really profound right there that, that has stuck with me so far, uh, that developing on, if people started developing on Ethereum because of how much cheaper it is than developing on, on Bitcoin. Uh, and so yeah, I think it would make sense to continue that pattern and ensure that developing on Ethereum is always cheaper, more cost effective than developing on, on other protocols. And so I would imagine that Ethereum has some sort of lead in that uh, realm because of its developer tools. Um, and I'm not a developer, so I don't know how these things work. But uh, assuming that you can't just simply port developer tools from Ethereum to Definity or to Cosmos or whatnot, like how much lead would you say that... Like when it, when it comes to hours of labor, like how much of, of a lead does Ethereum have with that like robust developer ecosystem that has built out tools and and you know you know libraries for other developers to use? Do we do we have much of a of a lead there? Yeah, we we have a significant lead, uh, but it's not uh, guaranteed to stay that way. Uh, and so as Ethereum grows, uh, it is increasingly hard to improve upon it, right? The, the coordination costs are higher, um, more people need to be involved in every decision. Um, and other centralized, more, more centralized, smaller um, blockchain ecosystems can learn a lot of the lessons from Ethereum uh, and then take them and implement them uh, at, you know, much faster. And so, and, and keep in mind that Ethereum was made before anybody knew what to do with smart contracts, right? Uh, like the killer app for Ethereum initially was ERC-20. Uh, because before ERC-20, if you wanted to launch a coin, uh, you had to fork Bitcoin and like get your own whole miners. And it was like having your whole own army. Uh, and then Ethereum is like, you know, we have walls. Like you can write a smart contract, you don't have to do all that work. Uh, and so, um, like that that was great but like now that people are starting to figure out what to actually do with these systems uh it's easier to cater to that need directly uh and so you might see 
other projects try to do that uh, and, and might get a head start um, in doing that. And so Ethereum has to be fast, right? Uh, in order in order to uh, keep up. We have a lead, but you know, if you ask somebody like Fred Wilson, we're blowing it, right? <laughs> Let's admit it. You guys are really scared about Tron. Tron's coming after everyone, man. Uh, that's, I think that's the one I'm least <laughs> afraid of. Uh, I mean, community matters too a lot, right? So like Tron is, Tron is cool. Um, I probably would never build anything on it. Um, but, and like part, part, of, part of what we're, you know, we're trying to be careful of is with Moloch, with, with this sort of like competitive attitude, like I'm personally competitive, uh, but like, that's not necessarily the attitude that a lot of the, the open source developers have uh, that that like do most of the work in the space, right? They're they're in this because they want to build a better world, and so like we, I'm I'm what all I'm thinking about is like how do I make sure that their work is not useless, right? That, that their work doesn't become obsolete, uh, and so you you sort of have to be a little bit competitive, um, but in a way that doesn't you know alienate anybody uh, who is who is doing it to you know, just support open source and, and build a, a better future. Uh, like when, when Vitalik writes the plasma paper and you see like this enormous amount of effort go into the research and development around that, just because people think it's cool and because Vitalik published it, like that, that has a huge value that you couldn't buy if you paid for it. So preserving that's really important to me. So one of the the, the conversations that has, has started recently about this whole competition in the smart contracting place has really been surrounding Polkadot. Uh, and, you know, Polkadot has been, or Parity has been uh, great for Ethereum and, and has been a, a very supporting role ever since it's, at the dawn of its time. Uh, and then there's Polkadot, which has been marketed as like Ethereum's like buddy or Ethereum's like cousin or something. Uh, and now that we're getting closer to launch date, I've seen a lot of people talk in, in the Ethereum space about how it's actually a snake in the grass and not really Ethereum's friend at all. And so the, the question that I pose to, you know, these other Ethereum uh, community members who are very bullish on, on Ethereum is like, w the question is like, why do, like, why are we so anti Polkadot pro Ethereum? And the answer to that is probably because, well, we all have Ether and so we're all you know, economically incentivized to be on Ethereum's like side, take a side and take Ethereum side. Um, but some of these developers just don't see it that way. Like a lot of these developers don't see it that way. And, and Vitalik has expressed concern about like in the middle of the ICO bubble, Vitalik expressed concern about the state of crypto and how, you know, if it turns out to just be about Lambos and, and, you know, going to the moon, then he'll leave the ecosystem. Vlad has said that that he would leave the ecosystem under certain like, conditions if if you know he never he then like stop seeing a future for him in Ethereum like the number of developers would just get up and leave I think because of what they might see in another chain and so you kind of talked about how over time as blockchains grow and become more robust they also start to calcify. Uh, and so like, where do you th see Ethereum on that spectrum? Like has Ethereum calcified to a point where, you know, some, something like Polkadot might come along and, and convince all of these, you know, financially agnostic developers to uproot and move? I, I think Polkadot's going to do well. Um, I don't think Ethereum has calcified yet. 
there's still active development. Ethereum would be calcified if like there was no ETH 2.0 effort, right? If like we weren't actually going anywhere, if if things weren't improving and getting better, um, if we weren't dealing with the sort of maintenance issues like uh, trying to figure out what to do about you know the state increasing and, and introducing state rent and um, like Eric. Connor uh, just released an EIP about like figuring out a new auction mechanism for for gas fees. Like that was really cool. Like this, this ecosystem is is not uh, calcifying. It is uh, you know it is growing and it is growing rapidly. But that means that it's it's moving slower, but it's moving in all the directions at once. Right. So a thought that comes to my head is decentralization is expensive. And part of that is moving slower as you're getting more and more decentralized and there's more and more stakeholders. Do you feel as though the strategy behind evolving Ethereum is kind of like running uphill and running against that general trend? Um, it sounds like there is some, you you are admitting that there are benefits of having centralized, you know, features, especially when it comes to nimbleness. Absolutely. Uh, some amount of centralization can be really helpful. Uh, it means that decisions get made faster, um, but it also introduces risk, right? It means that if that person or you know whoever is uh, acting you know in that role uh, defects or uh, quits or whatever, then like it, it's much more expensive. It's uh, so. Um, I think the pace wasn't as important when the competition wasn't as you know like prevalent um but like as a bunch of other platforms come along and ethereum has to compete like the narrative will change and uh decentralization doesn't necessarily mean that there's an absence of coordination uh, and sometimes what decentralized groups do is they uh pick someone uh, or some smaller group in order to be able to execute their will. Uh, and you, you still get decentralization and not like, you know, elitism if the, the smaller group is held accountable by the larger group. Uh, that's the sort of more ideal situation. And I could see something like that happening, and it sort of already is, right? Like the, the Ethereum spec is put together by four people. Um, it's like Vitalik, Justin, Danny Ryan, and, and Xiaowei. Uh, and like, they're, they're the ones who, who are driving this, and then like, that's fine. Uh, <laughs> right, like Bitcoin was centralized up until the point that it was launched. Uh, it was one dude that just figured it all out. So, yeah, I'm, uh, the advantages of centralization are not to be understated, um, but doesn't doesn't come without risks. So, how do you feel about where Ethereum, the state of Ethereum 2.0 development is? Uh, do you pay? I mean, you yeah, you funded that report, so I'm assuming you stay, you know pretty close to the signal. How do you feel about progress? You know, how much more worked? Like, how intimidated are you by the work in front of us? There's more than I expected. Uh, so if you'd asked me, like, four months ago, you know, what the state of ETH2 is, I would have been like, I don't know, man. I think they're still working on it. Like, sounds good to me. Uh, but then I realized, like, that probably wasn't good enough. And, you know, it, with Spankchain, like, I'm betting on Ethereum. We've we've invested heavily in building on it, um, learning about it, and and so forth. And I don't want to see that uh, go to waste. And so, for for me, like my strategy was okay. Let me just talk to all the people who are doing it. Uh, and so we set up these interviews. We wrote that report. Um, and like within I don't know, with like ten hours of work, we like got probably in like the top you know, 20 or so people like outside of the actual effort in terms of our understanding of what was going on and how, how things were happening. Uh, so 
what the current state is is that the I mean the test nets are, are getting put together for the beacon chain. Um, then the phase one spec is is being worked on, um, and like we're trying to find ways to uh, get the development of phase one to be somewhat in parallel with uh, phase zero. And uh, the plan is to, to ship phase zero by before the end of this year, uh, try to ship phase one before the end of next year, and then phase two before the end of the year after that. Personally, I think it could happen faster. I don't think that three, like I think three years is too long to get the three, the phase zero, one, and two out. I think two years is enough. Um, and I think that it's feasible if we accelerate the pace of development as now it is engineering uh, constrained. Um, so I think, and I, and what I'm seeing right now is that Ethereum is rallying. I don't know if we had anything to do with that. I don't want to take credit for that. Uh, but what I am seeing is that people are stepping up. Tell, tell us more about that. What, what have you seen where people have stepped up? Um, there's, there's more people who want to get involved in ETH2. Um, they're like Danny Ryan took it upon himself to be coordinator. And when we, uh, published our report, and we put it as an open question that like should you know should he be somebody that's recognized as uh, a coordinator for for ETH2 um, and people have acknowledged that and accepted it and that means that he has more leverage and that things can move faster um, uh, and and so there's less time being spent on sort of the like uh, organizational uh, you know, we're a decentralized organization. Like, let's uh, <laughs> talk to each other about everything. Figure out, uh, you know, like who who does what, and more like, okay, you know, uh, th these are all of our jobs. Like, let's just go do our job. All right. So, would you say that there has the ETH community as kind of like a entity has kind of allocated some weight onto? A central group of people uh, to lead this effort. Yeah, I mean, Vitalik's always been pretty central to this, uh, and it's it's good to see that other people have uh, flocked to him uh, and and joined the cause, uh, and that those people are now also being recognized as leaders of this effort. So, what would you say is the most likely collapse of the Ethereum 2.0 effort? So, I mean, one one possibility is like ETH goes to ten bucks. Uh, and like everybody runs out of money, uh, and then we just slow to a crawl, and it dies, right? Um, another is like uh, developers, like there's a cultural schism, um, like the the developers quit, uh, they they decide, you know, they they didn't sign up for a competitive thing, they want to do more open source, or maybe some of the people are like, I want to be more competitive, I don't want to uh, like. Uh, you know, I, I want this to, to have more accountability, more more defined roles, uh, not just sort of like this decentralized, like I don't know who's in charge uh, type of thing. Um, so so that either of those could happen. Um, Vitalik could get hit by a bus. Uh, that would be really really unfortunate for Ethereum and like the world. Um, so, but but barring that, like I don't think it's going to stop. Um, everybody who we talk to is super dedicated. Uh, they they want to see this happen uh, because they all believe in Ethereum's mission. Like they believe that Ethereum is a positive force for humanity, and they want to see it, uh, you know, 
taken to the next level. So how do you feel about uh, blockchain maximalism uh, with, with so much emphasis behind Ethereum 2.0 and getting Ethereum right? Do you, do you think, and maybe do you think other people think that there will only be kind of one blockchain that takes up the vast majority of space in this, in this space? I don't, I don't think blockchain, like I, I'm, I'm kind of torn on this. Uh, so I, first of all, I don't think that like there will be one blockchain to rule them all. Um, especially with proof of stake systems, like the cost of attacking a chain goes up by a lot um, because you have to buy it all and then it raises the price and um, so forth. But uh, for, for me, I'm, I'm kind of torn because like I want Ethereum to w like to do well and and win, whatever that sort of means. Um, but, but part of that comes from the fact it's not just that like, you know, Spank Chain holds ETH and I hold ETH. It's like I spent all this time learning the stuff, like I have all these friends, like, some of it's tribal. Like, I don't want to have to go make all new friends, right? Like, <laughs> that seems like a drag. <laughs> like, I already went through this once. Um, like, I, I don't want to see, you know, all, all the stuff we learned not matter. Um, and, and, and like, when, when you're a developer, you're a project. Like, you don't have, you don't have the, like, you're, it, it's different than being an investor. You can't just bet on everything, right? You sort of have to pick something. Uh, and then you, you have to make it work, right? Um, and in that position, it's easy to see that in the, through the lens of maximalism. And it's not really maximalism, right? It's just like preference. It's like, I'm here, I've done this, you know, I'm already in this camp. Like, I'm not saying your thing's any worse. Like, do you do you, man? Like, that's great. But like, <laughs> we're going to do us. Like, we're going to build on our thing and we're going to try and make it work. And if you call us maximalists, then like, so be it. You know, I feel like that was a little bit of a PC answer. And I kind of want to get like, what do you think is actually going to happen? Right? Do you think it's going to be like more of a Pareto distribution? Um, do you think that it's going to make sense to have fifteen proof of stake chains? You know, do you think that that's how this thing's going to shake out? I'm just kind of curious. What what do you see right now? There's there's certainly network effects involved. Uh, so like if I'm issuing an asset, I might want to issue it on the most secure chain, and the more assets that are issued on a chain, the more secure you know, the, the more it'll drive its value up and the more secure it'll be and the more um, it'll, you know, sort of continue. Um, as the tooling gets better for a chain, uh, it becomes easier to develop on. And so there's network effects around that. Um, and so I, I could see a Pareto distribution happen. I don't think it'll be like, you know, 20 blockchains that are all, you know, sort of neck and neck. Right, with one twentieth or something of, of the distribution, I could see it being as far as smart contract platforms go. Like they might diversify, uh, something like you know Tron with their DPoS and EOS DPoS and stuff. That that's fine. They focus on gaming and, and gambling, and like Ethereum ends up being more for finance uh, and exchange, um, and and that's fine. And maybe there's layer twos on Ethereum that then compete with like Tron and EOS um, and and stuff like that too. Um, so, yeah, and, and, and part of, for me, like, I'm trying to influence it in that direction, right? Like, I would prefer a world where Ethereum has 80% of the value uh, right now. And to the extent that I can, I'm going to try and make that happen. Um, and this isn't, like, I also want to be very clear that this is not the type of thing that is like a when Lambo, right? Uh, this is not me being like, I want the price to go up because I want to get rich, right? This is that, like... I want to do the types of things that drive value to the chain in the long term. 
um, by increasing its utility, by making it easier to build on, uh, by attracting people to, to build on it. Uh, because that would mean that there's less likely that my work uh, is, you know, I have to then go do it again on some other chain or something. Right. You're saying like the, the if Ethereum goes up in price, it's a, it's a result of immense value and utility being generated on the network and attracting it as it so deserves rather than like, you know, what happened in 2017 where it didn't really deserve that. Yeah, there's like an ethical way to do it. So ethics matter? Uh, depends who you ask. Uh, <laughs> I mean, they matter until the other... Price definitely matters. Yeah. Uh, I, I think ethics matter because if like, for example, they we all decided they didn't, like Vitalik might quit. <laughs> right <Yeah. laughs> so so to the extent you've alluded to vitalik quitting dying something that like barring anything horrible happening like what does vitalik exiting ethereum in any way mean to ethereum um i mean he's figuring out the hardest problems uh so it would be a, a shame if he did and there's still so much more to do that uh i i, I don't anticipate that he will anytime soon um, I think that he would only exit once he felt that Ethereum's fate was secure and that he accomplished the things that he set out to do. Uh, for example, getting proof of stake done, getting sharding done, um, you know, all, all of the sort of promises that he's been making um, with suitable, uh, you know, uh, successors. What do you think is the more relevant question, Ethereum versus Polkadot or Polkadot versus Cosmos? <laughs> hard to say uh they're both sort of relevant uh what's more relevant is it's probably polka dot versus cosmos uh like ethereum is you know way ahead right it's, it's going to be really hard to replicate the network effect the global reach the community the tooling um and and both of those chains have to compete against each other before they can get to the point that they can you know, if, if one of those comes out as a clear victor, which hasn't happened yet and probably won't for a while, then it'll be more relevant, uh, whichever one of those wins, right? Or not wins, but like, you know, does better over time, you know, whatever metric you want to use, transaction fees, uh, to total utility usage. Total value on the chain, yeah. Uh, okay, so one last question for me. Uh, how do you feel about on-chain politics or or what Vlad has been uh, alluding to, which is some sort, I don't even know what he's been alluding to, but some sort of like crypto UN that governs blockchains. How do you feel about that whole idea? So I had a long conversation with Vlad yesterday. Uh, it was interesting. It was a little scattered. Um, I think Vlad was trying to sort of be the, the you know, uh, he's trying to warn everybody that there's this like big problem coming. Uh, and the problem is that we haven't really talked about how Ethereum integrates into like global politics. Uh, and one of the things that he brought up that he's most concerned about is uh, Ethereum as an immutable, unstoppable smart contract platform uh, basically people building things that uh, promote or facilitate violence against people like public figures, um, things like assassination markets. Uh, and it's, it's really hard to stop something like that. It's like we, there's no possible way in Ethereum that we could coordinate 
to like hard fork faster than a transaction gets confirmed, right? Um, and so like, you know, we have to be careful, right? It's like, what he's trying to warn us is that like we should feel responsible for the outcomes of Ethereum. He's, he wasn't really proposing, uh, like I was, I was trying really hard to get him to talk about specifics. Um, that was the first one I got. Um, and, and so we're in this position where like, uh, we should feel responsible for the things that we could possibly affect, right? And so like, if there's a way to prevent that, then that we, we couldn't do, then we should feel responsible. But if there's no way to prevent that, then like we should be counting on you know the sort of world governments to be the ones policing and watching uh, and trying to figure out like who put the assassination art market on the blockchain. Like that was bad. Go get that guy. Right. Um, like that's not necessarily. I, I don't want to say our problem because uh, it, it would probably be our problem, <laughs> um, but it's not like something that we could directly affect. Probably. He just wants to make sure that we don't, you know, absolve ourselves of this responsibility and not consider that at all. Well, I see a lot of, personally, I see a lot of second and third, fourth order consequences with what Vlad is proposing. Because, like, you could say, make the same argument with, like, the internet. When people created the internet, they, no one was telling them that they need to think about the potential harm that the internet might cause. You can say this for any technology, right? So, like, when, when Henry Ford is inventing the Model T, did he have this guy like whispering in his ear saying like, hey, we have to make sure that when we design this car, it's going to never, ever, you know, crash into another car. And like if you designed a car that way, it would come out not looking like a car. It would be something else and it would probably probably be shittier. Uh, and, and same with the Internet. If you design the Internet so that it was, you know, harmless, it would be something else that would be not functional. Uh, and not really useful. So I guess that would be my, my argument there to, to an arguee that we don't have here on this podcast at the moment. <laughs> yeah, and regarding your point of like on-chain governance, um, I think it would be basically like politically intractable like uh, for Ethereum to implement mm -hmm. on-chain governance right. after the fact uh, for you know major major decisions. Maybe like it could you know, inflation fund a DAO or something, but that's just like how to distribute those funds to like make Ethereum, uh, you know, advance. But like, it's not like, okay, how do we, uh, should we remove this smart contract? Should we change the rules, right? Um, and so the only tool that we really have mm -hmm. is like governance by hard fork, uh, which everyone hates. Which is a good uh, thing that people hate. <laughs> so like, yeah. Uh, um, everyone has that option, right? And so, like, everyone has uh, that option, though. It's it's this it's this really interesting position to be in, where like I'm not really sure what's going to happen. Um, I'm not like against on-chain governance in principle, uh, but like, you know, I, I don't think it's going to happen. And so, like, what are we to do, right? Like, should should we stop, like, and then build a shitty Model T, like, <laughs> or like should should we keep going because we think that the positives outweigh the negatives, right? Um, and then, like, maybe if it is actually the case that, like, people really prefer on-chain governance, then, like, those chains will win, right? And, like, let the market decide. I think the, the best model for on-chain governance that we have is the MakerDAO model, where somebody like Vlad can actually go and voice his opinion about whatever the things that MakerDAO has control over. 
and you know that's governance uh and also maker dao doesn't really have any influence over anything that's not within its own realm right so it only impacts things that it impacts things that it's designed to impact and so you know maker dao doesn't really have any impact over spank chain and that's the benefit of a blockchain that has absolutely no on-chain governance and so their maker dao has on-chain governance for maker dao and i think by compartmentalizing these things and putting up governance walls I feel like that's that's what Vlad is actually looking for. Well, it's pretty obvious that Vlad is scared about autonomous software. So uh, I don't think that that is what Vlad is looking for. I think Vlad wants to fear monger and introduce politics and this stuff. But I'm not trying to point fingers here. Um, that's just my personal opinion. Uh, but there are definitely benefits of having a reliable base layer that is kind of politics free. Um Something that you kind of mentioned that was pretty interesting to me is it's been become very clear to me that some sort of like inflation funding is not out of balance for a lot of people in the Ethereum community. But in the Bitcoin community, inflation is the cardinal sin, right? So like what is out of balance for you? Like what are the boundaries for base layer Ethereum? So uh, it's super, it's super interesting that bring up the difference between Bitcoin, because like what Bitcoin is optimizing for is monetary policy. Uh, and what Ethereum is optimizing for is like security and utility. Um, and so like Ethereum's monetary policy has always been second to its security. Uh, some amount of inflation in general has always been, you know, we, we Vitalik has uh, written, I think years ago, posts about how he doesn't necessarily want to commit to having uh, disinflation all the way to zero, uh, because th the fees are not necessarily enough to pay for the security, right? Um, so, so in inflation funding for development is a is a new phenomenon uh, that that we're discussing, and that's more just because we realize maybe we need to have an alternative source of funding um, and and a way to uh, you know c continue maintenance and stewardship, uh, but but it's also because like. The, the environment has changed, right? It's like last year it wasn't as important. Uh, ETH was really high. But like, I think the thing that attracted everybody to Ethereum, uh, it, it's, it has a culture of pragmatism. Uh, it has this culture of like, you know, we do what makes sense. And if you do what makes sense, nothing is off the table, really. Um, everything is on the table. Um, because you, you can't know today what what the problems are going to be tomorrow. Um, and so if, if you were going to take things off the table, like categorically, then you would be limiting your options tomorrow. Now, there's good ways of being able to do that because then you can make credible commitments to uh, the, the future, but then you, you have to be careful. And I think when, when, when the DAO hack actually happened, uh, Vitalik wrote about, uh, he wrote a post, I think it was called like, why... Uh, artificial intelligence, like ex, you know, ex-risk researchers and like blockchain de like developers should talk, like learn from each other. And he talked about this example of like the sort of uh, you know, like the paperclip optimizer, where you you say, uh, hey, I want to like have you know, you, you get this like super intelligent AI and you're like make paperclips, and then suddenly it turns the entire world and all the people in it and like all of the resources into paperclips and takes over the entire galaxy in order to make paperclips. And you're like, damn it, that's not what I wanted. Uh, and and if you t 
take away your controls uh, to be able to then provide feedback back into the system and be like, hey, you're not doing what I want, please do what I want, uh, then you, you get these runaway outcomes that are not good for anyone. Uh, and, and so you want to be careful not to <laughs> end up there because that's, that's worse uh, than like, ha you know, leaving the option open. So yeah, no, nothing's, I, I guess, you know, if we're talking like philosophically, nothing is off the table. <laughs> It sounds like you actually kind of agree with Vlad a little bit. You're just less concerned. Yeah, that's that's where my mind just went too. That sounded like what Vlad was worried about, a paperclip optimizer, an on-chain paperclip op optimizer. I, I think, yeah, I think people really misunderstood our conversation because I, I wasn't disagreeing with Vlad. I was just trying to get him to talk about specifics so I could actually talk about something. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, we, like, you know, I, I was, he was like, I'm afraid. Uh, immutability, you know, immutability. Uh, I'm not sure if this is a good thing and I'm like why don't you think this is a good thing what are some of the things that you're afraid and like it took a while to get to you know yeah you, you kind of have to hand hold them into the conversation the the actual meat of it and like I wanted to engage with that and 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 not the sort of super abstract and like you know trying to ground him and he's like keep going meta and I'm like damn it like let's just talk about this I got to apologize. We, I told you at the beginning of this episode that I wouldn't bring up Vlad, but I did want to talk about, talk about governance. It's, um, it's good. I mean, governance is important. Um, and it's uh, like, I, th I think maybe he's right um, in that we don't talk about it enough. But at the same time, like there's an opportunity cost, right? Like if we spend all of our time talking about governance and then the next guy uh, doesn't uh, and they just build the thing then like we might fall behind because we spent all of our time bickering and then like those guys pass us up and then it didn't matter anyway. Right. So my question is like for me, my kind of the way I see it is the whole point of a blockchain is to essentially kind of get rid of government. It's kind of like abstract this thing away and make it permanent and make it so that it's very transparent. Exactly what happened. Like what is the point of a blockchain? Uh, my, my view on this is that there's no such thing uh, as immutability. Like immutability is a social contract at the end of the day. Like if everybody in ETC decided that they didn't care about immut immutability anymore, then Ethereum Classic would no longer be immutable. Uh, it is actually um, like Bitcoin itself might actually add inflation one day. And you're actually starting to see the beginnings of that conversation happening. Uh, and the reason it's happening is because people are starting to realize just as Vitalik realized years ago, that transaction fees may not be enough to pay for the security of the chain. Uh, and if that's the case, then th there might need to be some inflation. And then people in Bitcoin would go through this like, sort of, you know, like awakening, <laughs> where they realize that like they love Bitcoin so much that they're willing to sacrifice a little bit of their monetary policy absolutism in order to see it continue to succeed. And like, blockchains you know, what's the point of blockchains? Like blockchains are a social coordination mechanism. Uh, if, if you value immutability and everybody else values immutability, then you'll have an immutable blockchain. Uh, if you value something else other than immutability, then you'll end up with a blockchain that, you know, uh, might be somewhat mutable in some circumstances. Uh, but, but it's all uh, based on the people, right? Because, you know, we can all hard fork at any time. We we choose we choose what chain we uh, acknowledge uh, as as truth. So, in addition to uh, security and utility, what else do you see Ethereum optimizing for? Um, so, utility is 
pretty broad. Yeah, hard uh, question, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> like, um, so security is a little more straightforward. Um, but what what else is Ethereum optimizing for? Um, security is kind of like price too, in a sense. Where security? Where, yeah. Yeah. It is uh, kind of price. Uh, I was like, yeah, that's what I was trying to tweet about. It's like all the times that we say, you know not talk about the price are we also saying like let's not talk about security right right well, that was the main motivation between behind the this article i wrote about the role of ether in mm-hmm. multi-collateral die i don't know if you ever read that i did but it was all about uh trying to ensure that ether always has a little bit of an advantage as a collateral type so there's more ether locked up to support the ether price and i think that's one kind of topic of conversation i want the broader ethereum world to talk about is when something like MakerDAO gets built, how much homage should that DAO be expected to pay the base blockchain? And by by that I mean how much do how much should we incentivize some sort of like uh, ETH lockup or returning utility to ETH in order to make Ether more valuable? Because you know Bitcoiners talk about Bitcoin as a DAO. Uh, we can say the same thing about Ethereum as a DAO for the benefit of ether and as the ethereum network grows and grows and grows the role of ether becomes more valuable but if we can grow ethereum with the intent of making ether more valuable i mean that's nice because we all get rich but uh, also the security of the network is so incredibly high that that there it kind of just takes the cake for the whole entire world so i'm just going to jump in here i know this question was for amin but i just want to say that Price is one of the most important aspects of all of this stuff. One of the things that pissed me off the most, and this often comes from people on the Ethereum side, is they're like, what happens if Bitcoin stays at $2,000 forever? Well, then Bitcoin fucking fails. I'm sorry. It's not going to work. The whole way, like the whole incentive structure is made for price pumping. And if the price does not pump and it does not gain adoption, it does not become something that people put value into then it's gonna break and proof of stake proof of work both of those are fundamental are like fundamentally hinged to the price i i find myself agreeing with you uh with a little bit of nuance which is like for bitcoin itself like because it's money like that's the point like it matters a lot uh you know i I don't i don't want to say like more but like differently right like for bitcoin it's like I want to hold the thing and I want to know that it's it's going to be valuable. For Ethereum, it's like I want to stake the thing uh, and I want to make sure that the rewards I'm getting from staking are, are worth it. Uh, that the, the total amount of settlement uh, that is taking place on the chain um, is high. And so like Ethereum can be a settlement layer for everything else. It could even be a settlement layer for Bitcoin. Martin Koppelman said this thing that was hilarious, which he said, uh, soon to be popular opinion, uh, the price of Bitcoin on Ethereum will be higher than the price of Bitcoin on Bitcoin uh, because you can do more things with it. And I think he's right. Uh, and, and I think that's really interesting. And like, if you find that like a lot of Bitcoins are on Ethereum suddenly, uh, then I think that'll be good for the price of Ether uh, because I think, you know, there's more incentives to stake it uh, because you'll get, you know, some fraction of, uh, of, of the rewards and the, the value that's being transferred and, and so forth. David and I already had this debate. We talked about wrapped ether uh, premium versus like uh, having a negative cost because of the work they have to do to wrap or sorry, not wrapped ether, wrap BTC. Um, so, I mean, obviously I disagree just because maybe I'm skeptical of the Ethereum ecosystem's value. Um, I'm not as skeptical as I used to be. I definitely think that there's something there. 
I think that's part of the reason we have this podcast, at least in the medium term. But uh, in the long term, obviously, I think that BTC's value prop is very important by itself. So I love your dynamic, uh, you two. Uh, I love I love the diversity of opinions uh, that comes from this because it makes it makes this really fun. Uh, every time I get on here with you guys, uh, because we, we can have conversations that aren't just like, I like Ethereum, you like Ethereum, great, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's, a lot, it's a lot more fun. Um, but what I, what I will say is that um, one, of, one of my favorite things about uh, immutability maximalists is that they very rarely change their minds. <laughs> so you know uh kudos <laughs> for for being right. slow to change your mind <laughs> for for dragging it out <laughs> uh that's yeah like those etc guys are gonna be there forever <laughs> you know we, we sort of left them behind and they're like no this is our hill and we're dying on it and like if we check back in 10 years we're gonna be like still on the hill <laughs> haven't gone anywhere yeah. <laughs> fuck you guys for the dow like <laughs> we're gonna be like dude that was 10 years ago <laughs> i feel like i'm into immutability a lot but at the same time like i would never die on etc yeah that's interesting right <laughs> so it's not like it's immutability without security is nothing so like what's the point true all right, guys, I think that's a great place to end it unless anyone else has any more comments. Uh, this has been great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I mean, thanks for thanks for being some of, one of our earliest supporters, giving us a ton of good content that we capitalize on. Yep, thanks for having me. Thanks for jamming on Moloch. Um, mm-hmm. Look forward to maybe coming back one day. Uh, Absolutely. And, uh, hopefully it doesn't get hacked, and you know, that'd be really sad. If it does, I'll, I'll come back. If it doesn't, then maybe you know it'll have millions of dollars, and we can talk about a whole lot more things that Ethereum can do to, <laughs> <laughs> to expand and, and so forth. Definitely. Regardless, I think it's going to be an interesting uh, follow-up conversation. So looking forward to interview number three. Um, this is a great time for you to show yourself. Who do you want to hear from? Where can people find you, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter. Uh, maybe you already did. I'm Amin Sol. Uh, we just made a Moloch Dow account uh, on Twitter, so you can get all the updates uh, there. And um, the website will be MolochDow.com. Very cool. All right. And you guys can find me at Trustless State both on Twitter and on Medium. Sweet. And then, of course, you can find me on Twitter at CK underscore Snarks. I'm just tweeting anti-government, anti-fiat stuff nonstop. You can find the podcast at POV Crypto Pod. If anyone else has anything to say, here's your moment. I mean, do you have any burner wallet NFTs? No. Uh, I saw that you're in the market for those, but I can't help you there. Yeah. Okay. All right. Cheers. I am in the market. You should make a Moloch. You should get Austin to mint a, a Moloch NFT, so I'll buy it. Yeah. Uh, we have we have a Moloch uh, kudos on Gitcoin, but I don't know if that's an NFT. Yeah. We'll talk to Austin. We need some cool. Spank Chain NFTs. Maybe some Brenna titties. Yeah, Spank Chain NFTs are, are interesting. We thought about doing them like for performers. Um, just total side note, like. Set up a website called like Crypto Daddies or something, uh, where you can like bid <laughs> on an NFT for a performer, and if you have the highest bid, she like writes her your name on her tits or something, and you can go around and be like, look, I'm her Crypto Daddy. Oh my god. <laughs>
that, that would work so well. <laughs> yeah, but we have so many product ideas and, and only so much time. So. Okay. Speaking of so much time, we have to end this episode. All right, all right cheers. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. All right, bye, Amin.